This Hitch to Homicide episode contains depictions of rape and violence of a sexual nature. Listener discretion is advised. Canadians Paul and Carla were considered a beautiful couple, both from wealthy families that provided well for them. But they had a secret. Paul was a sexual sadist, and Carla was a willing participant who would do anything to keep Paul's love including procuring young virgins for the two of them to rape, torture, and murder. This is the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, the Ken and Barbie killers. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Portuguese friends. Oh, this will be good. Bem-vindo, bem-vindo, bem-vindo. Nicely done. Yeah. And I have Scotty here with me in the studio. All right, Scotty. And it's warm out and I have a fresh haircut and I'm ready to go. Oh, my gosh. Yep. All good things, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, review, subscribe. We really do appreciate all your likes and comments across all the podcast platforms. Yes, we do. We appreciate it more than you know, because the more you guys like and comment, the more we're shown to other true crime listeners. Right. And we just keep picking them up. What's the saying? I can pick up anything but loose women and change. <laughs> or maybe it's change and loose women. Yeah. If you're if you're watching on our YouTube channel, welcome to you as well. Yes, yes. And if you want to talk to us on the regular, you can join the closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Yep. Just go to Facebook, type in H2H In-Laws and Outlaws. You'll be right there. Yeah. It's such a great group. We really enjoy Really enjoy everybody there. There's always something on there that just makes me laugh. I know. It's great. Every single day. If you need a true crime laugh every day, you need to go join the group because there's a ton of true crime aficionados and comedians. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And it's amazing uh, how much a lot of these people know about true crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I said they're true crime aficionados. And they also like give suggestions, you know, have you heard of this case? Have you heard of that one? Yep. And so your other friends can go look, look up those cases as well. Yeah. Well, I'm going to switch from comedians in our Facebook group to Canadians. Oh, OK. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about the Ken and Barbie killers? <laughs> Do it. Go yeah. For it. Now, I've only been to Canada once for a book signing in Ottawa. I had a really good friend, an author friend, and she's Canadian, just the nicest, Eve Langley. She hosted a book signing there. And when I was in Canada, I actually went to a McDonald's, and I like a Diet Coke with lots of ice. Mm -hmm. And so I ordered a Diet Coke with lots of ice, and there were tons of people there. And the little guy who took my order comes back, shows me the cup with the ice in it, and says, is this enough ice? Wow. And I was like, I'm in Canada where everybody is so nice. They were so nice. Uh, Everybody. So nice. That's great. (laughs) 
Well, before I get started on this other Canadian story, let me thank some sources. All That's Interesting, The Independent, The Daily Mail, Newsweek, The Sun, Murderpedia, and Investigation Discovery. All right. You ready? I am. All right. Let's do it. Paul Kenneth Bernardo is born on August 27, 1964, in Toronto, Ontario, to Marilyn Eastman and Kenneth Bernardo. His mother was adopted by a wealthy Toronto attorney, Gerald and Elizabeth Eastman. Now, his mom was raised in a very stable and loving household, but his father, Kenneth, he was the son of an Italian immigrant and an English woman, and his father had a very successful marble and tile company. And this home his father's upbringing was not as happy as his mother's. Okay. His father was an abusive man to mm. his wife and his children. Okay. And after Paul's mother, Marilyn, breaks up with a boyfriend that her father didn't like, she meets Kenneth Bernardo. Mm. And these two are married in 1960. Okay. But abuse is a generational thing because the Office of Justice Programs here in the United States has stated that those who are abused as children, one third of them will abuse their own kids. Really? Yeah. And wow. Paul's father was abusive to him because Paul's grandfather was abusive to him, mm. to his father. So his mother, after having a son and a daughter, started seeing her old boyfriend again, the one that her father didn't like. And she gets pregnant. Yeah. The ex-boyfriend is going to be Paul's father. Oh, wow. Now, Kenneth Bernardo looked the other way when it came to his wife's affair, and he listed himself as the biological father of Paul on the birth certificate. Wow. Yeah. Then in 1975, Paul's dad is charged with child molestation mm. after he fondled a little girl. He's also sexually abusing his own daughter, Paul's sister. And he was a known peeping Tom in the neighborhood. Good Lord. So when Paul's mom became depressed over the sexual abuse of the little girls, including her own daughter, she moved into the basement of their home. She gained a bunch of weight. I read becoming grossly obese. Mm. She just disconnects from the family. She's no longer caring for herself, for the house, for the children. And both of the older children of Kenneth and Marilyn are really deeply affected by this. But Paul is not. So what you're saying, there's a lot of psychological effects to this. There is that nature versus nurture because yeah. his father really has problems. I mean, yeah. he's sexually abusing young girls. Right. But that's not Paul's real dad. Hmm. Yeah. But Paul's not really affected by any of it. He was always happy. He smiled a lot. And he was cute. He was polite. He did well in school. Everybody liked him. And as Paul grew up, he was really into the Boy Scouts. And he worked summers as a counselor. He was the most popular counselor at camp. Wow. The kids loved him. And he really liked being around them. Mm -hmm. He was determined to make something of his life. Paul was smart. He was nice looking. He held a long string of responsible after school jobs. Everybody thought he was setting himself up for success. And Paul is considered handsome. It was kind of hard for me to see it <laughs> because I researched the case before I looked at his photographs. Right. He has sandy brown hair. It seems as though he bleaches his hair at some points in his life. Mm -hmm. So he goes from Ken to Malibu Ken, if you know your Barbie characters. He was he was doing a little sun in. It, it's it's <laughs> honestly that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah. And people probably don't know what sun in is. Oh, I think it's still on the market. Oh, is it really? Uh, maybe he was just putting lemon juice in his hair. Yeah. As someone who is blonde who gets blonder in the summer. Yeah. 
That's what you do. Put yeah. lemon juice on your hair. Yeah. Especially in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> when Paul is 16, his parents have an argument. And after this, his mother tells him, you don't belong to your dad. Mm. He's not your biological father. Wow. And Paul is so disgusted by this, he starts calling his mother a slob and a whore. Wow. So this, coupled with his father being the neighborhood peeping Tom, Paul was over his parents. Yeah. He hated them. Wow. He starts hanging out with some neighborhood tough guys that had a really negative influence on him. These guys were were petty thieves and very macho acting. Mm-hmm. And after his mother told him he was a bastard child, his attitude toward women shifted. Yeah. When Paul graduated from Sir Wilfrid Laurie Collegiate Institute, he decided to begin working for Amway. Yeah. And Amway is a multi-level marketing company, in case you don't know. So you make money when you sell products, but you also make money when you sign others up to sell products. Right. And the culture of Amway really struck a chord with Paul. He started listening to all these tapes about selling and motivation. Paul would use his sales charm on women in bars. Mm. He bought books on sales and business and motivational get-rich-quick experts. And by the time he reaches university, the University of Toronto, Paul has developed some dark sexual fantasies. Mm. So this coupled with his charm... It just makes for a perfect storm. Sure. According to Paul, forceful anal sex was his preferred means of pleasure. Okay, this sounds more like a hurricane instead of a perfect storm. Yeah, it, well, it is. Wow. It is. Wow. Paul always wanted a submissive woman. He had a hot head. He enjoyed humiliating the women that he took out. He humiliated them in public and in private. He would actually beat them. Mm. And Paul's friend, Van Smearness, was fencing stolen goods. So while Paul's in college, he uses whatever means he has, be it legal or illegal, to fund some of his spending habits because he always looks like a guy who's got money. Right. When he graduates, Paul takes a junior accounting position with Price Waterhouse. And when Paul is old enough to pick a career... As you notice, he doesn't go into the family marble and tile business, okay. but instead becomes an accountant, a bean counter, a oh, pencil wow. pusher. Okay. Yeah. And it was a very, very successful marble and tile company. Okay. October 1987, Paul meets Carla Hamolka. Okay. Carla Leanne Hamolka is born on May 4th, 1970 in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, to parents Carol and Dorothy. Okay. Her father, Carol, with a K, K-A-R-E-L, mm-hmm. is a Czechoslovakian immigrant and a traveling salesman. Hmm. Now, Carla has two younger sisters, Lori, who's going to change her name later to Logan, who's just a year younger than she is, and Tammy, who is three years younger. Carla attended Sir Winston Churchill School, which was near her house. And Carla grows up in a very happy home. Her high school friends all said she was smart, she was popular, she was pretty, she loved animals. And so it makes sense that after she graduated from high school, she begins working at a local vet clinic. Carla is also considered nice looking, beautiful. And again, I have a hard time seeing it because I know this case. (laughs) (laughs) She had a nice body and long blonde hair. She was she was Barbie Mm. to his kin. And I wrote in my script, she's poor man's Barbie. (laughs) 
Because to me, like the Barbie movie is coming out. It's releasing this year. And Margot Robbie is playing Barbie. Carla is no Margot Robbie. But then again, who is? Who's playing Ken? It's Ryan Gosling. So again, and he has blonde hair. So he's Malibu Ken in this movie too, which it looks like it's going to be great fun. But yeah. In 1987, while on a trip during the summer to a vet convention in Toronto, Carla meets Paul Bernardo. Mm. She's 17 and Paul is 23. These two are attracted to each other instantly. They are sexually obsessed with each other almost immediately. Wow. And they're inseparable. Paul was into sadomasochism and Carla liked it. Mm. She encouraged it. Really? In fact, at one point, Paul asks her what she would think of him if he told her he was a rapist. Really? Okay. I'm assuming that wasn't the first date, though. (laughs) I mean, probably not. But, I mean, if you're with a guy for any amount of time and he says, well, what would you think if I told you I was a rapist? Oh, geez. You'd see the the skid marks as I, like, pull out of the parking lot. Yeah. 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 Doing a Fred Flintstone out the door. Well, Carla tells him she thought it would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, he was. These two have an S&M relationship where Paul is the master and Carla is the slave. And even though these two have quite the sex life, Paul isn't happy that Carla was not a virgin. What? Okay. That's called foreshadowing. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. Yeah. When he meets her, she's not a virgin. He's not too happy about that. Even though he's just told her that, okay. He might be a rapist. Yeah, whatever. Okay, go ahead. She still encourages his sadistic sexual behavior. And in fact, Paul is raping women before and after he meets her and begins this master-slave relationship with Carla. Wow. But what's cool with Carla is a reality for Paul because he's going to rape 11 young women in and around Scarborough, Ontario. Most of these girls he stalked after they got off a bus at night. Wow. I can't think of anything worse. Yeah. She was. May 4th, 1987, Paul commits his first rape in Scarborough against a 21-year-old woman in front of her parents' house. What? After following her home. Holy cow. The attack lasted more than 30 minutes, more than a half an hour. May 14th, 1987, Paul commits his second rape. He attacked a 19-year-old woman in the backyard of her parents' house. Hmm. This incident lasted over an hour. She was. July 27th, 1987, Paul attempts his third rape. Although he beat this young woman, he abandoned the attack after she fought back. Ladies, fight back. Always fight back. December 16th, 1987, Paul committed his third rape against a 15-year-old girl. This rape lasted about one hour. A rape that lasts one hour. A rape Uh. is usually take you down do the deed, and run away. Right. And he's keeping these girls. The following day, the Toronto Police Service issued a warning to women in Scarborough traveling alone at night, especially those who are taking buses. Hmm. December 23rd, 1987, Paul committed his fourth rape. During this attack, Paul raped a 17-year-old with a knife he used to threaten her. It was at this point he began to be referred to as the Scarborough Rapist. April 18th, 1988, Paul attacks a 17-year-old. This is the fifth assault, and this one lasted 45 minutes. May 25th, 1988, Paul is nearly caught 
by a uniformed Metro Toronto investigator who was staking out a bus shelter. And this guy notices Paul hiding under a tree. And he's like, oh, this has got to be the guy. Yeah. So he pursues him on foot. It's a foot chase. But Paul gets away. Okay. May 30th, 1988, Paul commits his sixth rape, this time in Clarkson, about 25 miles southwest of Scarborough. This attack against an 18-year-old lasted 30 minutes. October 4th, 1988, Paul attempted a seventh rape in Scarborough. His intended victim fought him off, but he inflicted two stab wounds to her thigh and her buttocks, which required 12 stitches. Jeez. He's getting very, very brazen. Yeah, yeah. They know He knows that they are looking for him. Right. November 16th, 1988, Paul committed his seventh rape against an 18-year-old in the backyard of her parents' house. So that's the third one where he has actually raped a girl on the property of her family or in the front yard, in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, brazen. Yeah, brazen. It's, yeah, mind-blowing that he would do it right there. And, and this isn't even the worst of Paul. Wow. I'm getting through just the rape stuff first. Jeez. November 17th, 1988, Metro Police formed a special task force dedicated to capturing the Scarborough Rapist. December 27th, 1988, an alerted neighbor chases Paul off after he had begun to attempt his eighth rape. Hmm. June 20th, 1989, Paul attempted to rape another young woman. She fought against him and her screams alerted the neighbors and Paul fled with scratches on his face. Okay. August 15th, 1989, Paul commits his eighth rape against a 22-year-old woman. He had stalked her the previous night from outside the window of her apartment, and he waited for her to arrive home. So now he's not just randomly getting them off the bus. He's picking out women, he's watching them, and then he's waiting for them to come back. Right. This is a particularly vicious rape, and this one lasts two hours. Ugh. Now, I promise I'm getting through all these... I'm getting through all of these. There's a reason I'm doing them all. I promise you. Okay. November 21st, 1989, Paul commits his ninth rape against a 15-year-old whom he saw in a bus shelter. This attack lasted 45 minutes. December 22nd, 1989, Paul commits his 10th rape against a 19-year-old. This attack occurred in a stairwell of an underground parking lot and lasted 30 minutes. Parking structures are one of the places that that bad guys lurk. So yeah. always be careful. Yep. Now, by 1990, he has he has raped 11 women. He's a horrible person. Yeah. And he is spending tons of time with Carla's wonderful, wholesome family. <laughs> He's leading a double life. He's definitely leading a double life. Yeah. And by this time, Paul has proposed to Carla. And these two are now engaged. Wow. So just think about this. The whole time he's dating her and having sex with her, because remember, she plays the slave. Right. He's the master. Right. He's also, on top of all of this, raping these women. Uh, yeah, I can't even comprehend that. And here's the thing. Her family really likes him. They liked him a lot. No, he's a charming guy. Yeah. 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 He's a salesman. <laughs> he is exactly. He's a salesman. Yeah. But what they don't know is that he's lost his job. Oh. Yeah, he's been fired from his accountant job. Really? And now he's smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border. Oh. 
Because Canadian tobacco companies legally export their cigarettes to the United States only for them to be smuggled back into Canada in order to evade Canadian excise taxes. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's got a little scheme going on. Wow. We have a friend who actually deals in Canadian cars when Canadian cars come across the border into the United States, switching them over from like kilometers to miles per hour. Mm -hmm. They have lots of stuff that that they have to do with it. Right. But it's a big thing. He does pay his taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's not, it's on the up and up. It's all on the up and up. (laughs) But the one thing the Homolka family does not pick up on is Paul's constant flirting with Tammy, Carla's youngest sister. Mm. He had begun to peep in her window and would go into her room to masturbate while she's asleep. Yeah. Good grief. This guy is just twisted. Well, wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. There is. Carla breaks the blinds in Tammy's room so Paul can watch her from the outside. She's helping him. (sighs) She is helping him. Wow. Master slave. Wow. May 22nd, 1990, Paul committed his 11th rape. This rape lasted over an hour. However, his 19-year-old victim's vivid recollection of her attacker permitted the police to make a computer composite photograph. There you go. Which was released two days later by police and published in all the Toronto and area newspapers. Okay. July 1990, two months after tips that Paul fits the description of the Scarborough rapist, because all these people have been calling in and going, I, I know that guy. Yeah. That's Paul Bernardo. Yeah. Hey, we know this chap. They know him. Yeah. So they bring him in. He's interviewed by two police detectives. Okay. Also in July, Paul takes Tammy across the border and into the United States to get beer for a party. And while they're there, according to Paul, he and Tammy, this is the younger sister, get drunk and they make out. Okay. That's horrible. But what's even worse is why would you pick U.S. beer over Canadian beer? (laughs) I don't get it. Now, all this time, Paul is dating and he is he's engaged. He's still dominating Carla, the submissive. From May to September of 1990, police submitted over 130 samples of suspects DNA for testing. They're bringing all these people in. They've brought Paul in. They're bringing a bunch of other guys in. And while they're doing this, because the Scarborough rapist is a nightly subject on the news and in the papers, this composite is obviously everywhere. And two different people have called the authorities to say, this guy, it looks like Paul Bernardo. So Mm. they keep getting phone calls. Sure, It's Paul. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And the police aren't listening to him? Well, hang on. Hanging. The first was a bank employee, and this call came in June of 1990. The second tip was from Tina Smyrnas. She's the wife of one of Paul's closest friends, Alex. She tells the detectives on the case that she knew Paul had been called in about a rape investigation back in December of 1987, but he was never interviewed. Really? And also Tina tells the police that Paul talks to her and her husband about how he likes rough sex. Mm. Clue. Clue number one. Yeah. Yeah. Police question her husband, Alex. And after I think he stumbles through telling the authorities about the things Paul liked to brag about, Mm -hmm. the sexually explicit things, they decide to bring Paul back in for questioning. This time. (laughs) This time. Yeah, Yeah. Also in the summer of 1990, Paul showers Tammy, Carla's little sister, with gifts. He buys her food and sodas for her friends. Hmm. 
And these sodas that he gives to Tammy and her friends had, quote, a film and a few white flecks on the top, end quote. What was that? Well, he's trying to roofie them. Ah, okay. Finally, on November 20th, 1990, Paul is interviewed by the police. Okay. So he's been on this list. All these people have been calling in. But it's not until November 20th, 1990, that they actually get his butt in a chair and start asking him questions. Even though they've had people saying, this is Paul, this is Paul, this is Paul. Yes, yes. And he's a sexual deviant. I mean, he likes to talk about his sexual escapades. Oh, jeez. Okay. This interview lasts 35 minutes. And during this time, Paul laughs and he admits, (laughs) yeah, I do look like that. I do look like that picture. It does look like me, doesn't it? It does. Wow. And the police are like, ha, 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 it does. He, like, charms these police officers. Wow. He gets in there and he's just like, we're a bunch of dudes right. talking. Yeah. yeah. But he does voluntarily give his DNA for testing. Uh-oh. Yeah. It's going to sit on a shelf forever. And when Paul walks out, the police have concluded he's a good guy. Yeah. He's well-educated. He's friendly. He's a responsible young man. He couldn't possibly be a rapist. Jeez. And on top of this, the police think that Paul's interview is way more cohesive than his friend Alex or Alex's wife, the people who are like ratting on him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this guy's good. Yeah. Yeah. And they think that Alex and Tina are interested in nothing more than the reward money that was being offered in exchange for their information about the rapist. They think this isn't about Paul. This is about money. Wow. So Paul is let go. They, you know, they probably exchanged phone numbers. Let's get together and watch a hockey game. I mean, it was that bad. Wow. The next day, November 20th, 1990, Paul drives to St. Catherine's where he meets up with Carla to assure her that he is not the Scarborough rapist. So even though he said to her, would you think it was cool if I was a rapist? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I think I think it was cool. Yeah. But then when he actually gets called on the carpet, he doesn't want her to think that it's actually him. Right. Because he doesn't want her to go to the authorities yeah. and be like, I really know this guy. Yeah. It's him. And he's trying to protect his butt. And he asked me if I thought it'd be cool if he was a rapist. Yeah. December 23rd, 1990, Carla's family is hosting a holiday party and Paul is in attendance. Of course he is. Right. Carla spikes her 15-year-old sister's rum and eggnog with halcyon. When the drugs start to take effect, she takes Tammy into the basement and into a bedroom where Paul is waiting. Oh, man. Nice big sister. Yeah. And remember how Paul is upset that he wasn't Carla's first sexual encounter? Yeah, yeah. Well, Carla is now offering up her 15-year-old sister as a, quote, virgin sacrifice to him. Good grief. It was a Christmas present. She is giving Tammy's virginity to Paul for Christmas. If you're not disgusted yet, hang on to your panties. I'm pretty pretty disgusted. We can quit right now. (laughs) Oh, no. There's so much more to come, and it gets so awful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Keep going. While Tammy and Carla's parents are asleep upstairs, Carla and Paul undress Tammy, and Carla applied a halothane-soaked cloth to her sister's nose. So ether and chloroform were replaced by halothane in 1956. And because Carla worked in a vet clinic, she thought she could control the drugs so that Paul could take Tammy's virginity without her consent or her even knowing. Wow. Yeah. She's stealing these drugs from the vet clinic. Jeez. 
These two film themselves raping Tammy in the basement with Paul's brand new video camera. The same one he'd used just hours before to take footage of Carla's family at the party. Oh, my gosh. But Tammy suddenly wakes up and she begins to vomit. So Carla was a little mad that Tammy had eaten so much that night. I mean, how dare her eat at her parents' Christmas party? Yeah. So Carla did what they did in the vet clinic if one of the animals got sick. She held her sister upside down to try to clear her throat. But Tammy was choking to death. Carla and Paul try to revive Tammy, and then they call 911. But first, they have to hide the evidence. They've got to dress Tammy, put her into a bedroom, Mm. act like she went down there by herself. (laughs) Carla and Tammy's parents don't even know something is wrong until the ambulance unit shows up at their house. And a few hours later, Tammy Homolka is pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital. She never regained consciousness after she choked on her own vomit. Wow. That changes everything. It changes everything. Yeah. After Paul and Carla vacuum and wash the clothes all in the middle of the night after her sister is pronounced dead, Carla keeps her sister's clothes. And you know what? When Tammy arrives at the hospital, she has a chemical burn on her face. But the Niagara Regional Coroner and the Homolka family believed the version of the story that Carla and Paul were spinning. Oh, wow. The official cause of Tammy's death was accidental choking on her vomit after the consumption of alcohol. Later, Carla and Paul will film themselves having sex while Carla is wearing Tammy's clothes. She is pretending to be Tammy for Paul. This is nuts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gee whiz. Okay. Paul moved to St. Catharines on February 1st, 1991, and Paul and Carla rent a Port Dalhousie bungalow. Okay. And amazingly, the attacks in Scarborough stop. Hmm. Well, because he's left. But on April 6, 1991, Paul commits his 12th rape in St. Catharines. The victim was 14 years old. And the prior 11 rapes happened at night, but this one happened early in the day, and he wasn't even near a bus stop at all. Okay. While Carla was working at a pet shop in 1989, we have to go back a little bit. She befriended a then 15-year-old girl who will forever be known in this case as Jane Doe. Oh, wow. And on the night of June 7th, 1991, years later, Carla asked the now 17-year-old Jane if she wanted to join her for a girl's night out. And these two go shopping and have dinner. And then Carla takes Jane to 57 Bayview Avenue. And there, Carla proceeds to ply Jane Doe with alcohol that is laced with halcyon. Mm. And it's important to know that Jane Doe has never had an alcoholic beverage. Oh, man. Ever. Wow. And she was also a virgin. There you go. Jeez. Now, the alcohol's bad enough, but she's giving her this halcyon, too. It's something that's prescribed for insomnia. Mm -hmm. It should never be mixed with alcohol because it can slow breathing to the point of death. Wow. After Jane loses consciousness, Carla calls Paul and says, your surprise wedding gift is ready. <laughs> Paul videotaped Carla with the girl before Paul raped her vaginally and anally. Wow. And when Jane Doe wakes up the next day, she's very nauseous. She's throwing up and thinks it's because she drank alcohol for the first time. Sure. She didn't realize that she had been raped. Mm. 
Like she was in pain. I've read a report. She's in pain, but she didn't know what was going on with her body. She didn't know she'd been raped. Then early in the morning on June 15th, 1991, Paul takes a detour through Burlington, halfway between Toronto and St. Catharines, to steal license plates. Okay. I mean, he's not, he's an accountant, but he's out stealing license (laughs) plates. Uh. This is where Paul encounters 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie is born on July 5th, 1976. Her father was an oceanographer for the Canadian Federal Fisheries and Oceans. Oh, wow. And her mother was a teacher. She'd missed her Friday night curfew and was locked out of her parents' house. She had gone to a memorial for a friend who'd been killed in a car accident. When she finally makes it home, it's 2 a.m. And she didn't, she couldn't find anybody to stay with. Her parents have locked her out of the house. She can't, she calls a friend and asks, you know, can, can I come stay with you? And her friend says, well, my parents said that I can't have anybody over. So she tells this girlfriend that she's going back to her house just to wake her parents up to get in the house. Leslie had adopted this wild streak, and sometimes she wouldn't come home at all. But she always stayed in touch with her mother. She always stayed in touch with her mother. She might not have come home. She might have been at a friend's house. She always called. Paul approaches her and tells her he's looking to break into a neighboring house. And she didn't seem to care that he's like looking to break into somebody's place. And she only replied by asking him if he had any cigarettes. And Paul leads her to his car, blindfolds her, and then forces her into his car, driving her to Port Dalhousie. Mm. And Paul takes Leslie home with him, and Carla is still asleep. And when Carla wakes up, she's mad at Paul for using their best champagne glasses to drink with this new, quote, toy. (laughs) I guess you got to have priorities, right? Yeah. Yeah. But she eventually comes around to being the obedient wife that she was. And Paul tells her, we have a new, quote, playmate. Wow. Paul gives Carla specific instructions on how to make love to Leslie. He was directing her. He wanted it perfect because he's videotaping the whole thing. But Carla is just the beginning. Paul would be brutal Carla and Paul videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Leslie Mahaffey while they listened to Bob Marley and David Bowie. Oh, my. Paul tells Leslie, quote, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damned good job. The next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect, end quote. Jeez. On another segment of the tape, the abuse escalates. Leslie is crying out in pain and begging Paul to stop. Her hands are bound in twine, and Paul is sodomizing her. Then later he mentions that her blindfold is slipping, and there's no way he can have her give a description of him or Carla. So the next day, Carla gave Leslie a lethal dose of Halcyon. Or, if you believe Carla, Paul strangled her. Either way, Leslie Aaron Mahaffey is dead. Hmm. They put her body into the basement of their bungalow and walk away. When the friend that Leslie called the night before, you know, looking to spend the night when Paul was picking her up, she calls Leslie's mom to ask about Leslie, her friend. And Leslie's mom becomes very concerned and goes to the police. When two weeks later, Leslie doesn't call home on her birthday, her family knows She's not calling because she can't. Yeah, duh. 
Yeah. Paul and Carla decide the best way to get rid of Leslie's body is to dismember her and encase each piece in cement. Whoa. So Paul buys a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the next day, and he keeps the receipts. Yeah. Okay. Because he's an accountant. Oopsie. (laughs) Maybe should have done that. Yeah. Paul used his grandfather's circular saw to cut the body. Then Paul and Carla made numerous trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson, just 11 miles or 18 kilometers south of Dalhousie. Wow. And a man and his wife were canoeing on Lake Gibson, and they come across this concrete block with some pieces of animal flesh encased in it. Later, he went back to the spot with the help of a fisherman to pull out the concrete block and look at it very closely. And inside the block was the calf and foot of a young woman. Oh, my gosh. The place was quickly full of cops, and they find a total of five concrete blocks dumped in the shallow water. Police decide it's not someone local. Otherwise, they would have dropped the blocks over the bridge into deep water where they'd never be found. Right. But Leslie had braces. And it's this orthodontia that clues the authorities in that it's the missing Leslie Mahaffey. Wow. The date that this is all happening when her body is found, June 29th, 1991, the day that Paul and Carla are getting hitched. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, they've, they've tortured this girl. Yeah. They've killed her, cut her up, put her in cement blocks. Now let's go get married. And the day she's found is their wedding day. Oh, yeah. boy. These two have a lavish wedding ceremony and reception. The church was in Niagara on the lake. They had white horses and a carriage. There was champagne, a sit-down dinner for 150 guests. And Paul was in control of everything for this wedding. Of course he was. From Carla's dress to how she wore her hair, the menu, and he made sure that love, honor, and obey were in the vows. (laughs) And it had to be... I now pronounce you man and wife, not husband and wife, Uh, because he's a dominant and she's his submissive. In August of 1991, Jane Doe is once again invited to Port Dalhousie, an area of St. Catharines on Lake Ontario, to spend the night with Carla. Why would she go back? She didn't know she'd been raped, remember? Uh, Yeah, but okay. Yeah. All right. Jane Doe is drugged and Paul rapes her, but while he's raping her, she stops breathing. Carla calls 911 for help, but then calls them back a few minutes later and says, quote, everything's all right, end quote. Hmm. The EMS unit is recalled and they turn around, go back, (sighs) and they never follow up. You can't do that these days, right? You can't do it in the United States. Yeah, once you make a 911 call, they have to no matter what. Now, I think there are some exceptions, okay. like if a child is, you know, has learned at school that 911 is the number you call and they pick up the phone. Right, and, right. Because there's like some really cute things where a little boy calls 911 because he needed help with his math homework, <laughs> <laughs> which is adorable. That's that? the helpline, man. I did that I when I was a sophomore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Paul is getting aggravated with his new wife. He's angry because she's supposed to know what she's doing with these drugs that she's stolen from the vet's office. Carla is frantic. She had to do something to put the spark back into their marriage, something to make Paul love her. Mm. November 30th, 1991, 14-year-old Terry Anderson disappears. 
It is thought that Terry is one of Paul's victims because where she vanishes is only two kilometers from where another known victim will later be abducted by Paul. Really? Then for a while, Paul and Carla found a woman from Ohio who would join them for sexual trysts. Hmm. But when she went back to Ohio, Paul was immediately bored and Carla needed to keep him sexually entertained and enthralled. On the afternoon of April 16th, 1992, Paul and Carla drive through St. Catharines, scoping out potential victims. School had already let out, and it was the day before Good Friday. And there were a few students walking home, but for the most part, the streets around the school are empty. They pass Holy Cross Secondary School, which is a main Catholic high school in the city. And who do they see but 15-year-old Kristen French? She's on her way home. Right. Kristen is born on May 10th, 1976. She was a member of a precision ice skating team, which won several medals. This is like synchronized ice skating, like synchronized swimming, but they're on ice. I had to look it up. It's very cool. That's cool. She's also a member of the girls' rowing team at Holy Cross, an all-around wonderful young lady. She's an athlete. She's just a great kid. Paul and Carla pull into the parking lot of the nearby Grace Lutheran Church, and Carla gets out of the car with a map in her hand. She's pretending she needs directions. Mm. Kristen looks at the map, and while she's got her head down looking at the map, Paul attacks her from behind. He brandishes a knife. He forces her into the front seat of their car. Then Carla climbs into the back seat and grabs Kristen's hair and pulls it back. This was her way of controlling Kristen in the front seat. Kristen took the exact same route home every single day. It took her no more than 15 minutes. And when she got home, she needed to take care of the family dog. But when she does not show up, her parents know something's up. And they immediately call the police. And in 24 hours, the Niagara Regional Police assembled a team, and they were searching the area along her walking path. They found several witnesses who watched the abduction from different angles. Oh, really? And this gave the police a pretty clear picture of what happened. And also, one of Kristen's shoes was found in the parking lot where she was abducted. Okay. So police know this is bad. Right. And one of the witnesses tells police that the type of car that the guy was driving was a Camaro. Mm but that she wasn't good with car types and styles. Right. And I just got to tell you, she's not yeah. good with car types. <laughs> Wasn't even close, right? And styles. Yeah. 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 Over the three-day Easter weekend, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves as they tortured, raped, and sodomized Kristen French. The things they forced this young woman to do, I'm not even going to talk about them in the podcast. Mm. I'm just leaving them out. It was awful. Uh-huh. But it was all captured on videotape. They force her to drink large amounts of alcohol and to behave as a submissive for Paul. They always planned to kill Kristen because they never blindfolded her. You know, they lured her to the car. On April 18th, Paul is seen out buying pizza by Carrie Patich, a girl he had stalked just a month prior. Her report was mishandled by the police. (laughs) So he actually stalks her. She knows what he looks like. Then he's out buying pizza. She sees him. Wow. And the police lost the whole thing. So when she calls back, they're like, we don't really have a, we don't have a a record of this. That's like the Keystone cops. A little bit. Because if it had been handled properly, Kristen might have made it out of Paul and Carla's hands alive. Wow. The next day on April 19th, 1992, 
Paul and Carla murder Kristen before going to Carla's parents' home for Easter dinner. I just, I, you have to just shake your head. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm doing. I, I don't even have a comment for any of this. It, yeah, yeah. Paul would strangle Kristen for seven minutes while Carla watched. Yeah. But Paul will say that Carla beat Kristen with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and that Kristen strangled on a noose that was tied around her neck and secured to a hope chest, of all things. Wow. After she's dead, Carla fixed Kristen's hair. And then she cuts it off. What? Yeah. Her death is not videotaped. Kristen fought Paul and Carla the entire time she was held captive and abused, saying to Paul, quote, some things are worth dying for, end quote. Wow. She also told him, quote, I don't know how your wife can stand to be around you, Jeez. end quote. Yeah, good for her. Kristen is just an amazing kid, yeah. an amazing kid. Yeah. On April 30th, 1992, Kristen's naked body is found in a ditch in Burlington, approximately 45 minutes from St. Catharines, Ontario. They're just getting... Brazen. Yeah. Don't even care anymore. Yeah. Kristen's body had been washed and her hair had been cut off. Remember I told you that they yeah. cut her hair off. Yeah. And at first, authorities believed that her hair was taken as a trophy, hmm. but they did it because they were hoping it would mask Kristen's identity. Hmm. But she wasn't dismembered. Yeah. So police think the two crimes, they're just not connected. <laughs> these two crimes aren't connected. Ah, uh, these police. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay. May 22nd, 1992, the body of Terry Anderson, who'd been missing since the previous November, is found in the water at Port Dalhousie. The medical examiners say no evidence of foul play, which I don't understand because what? her body had been in the water for about six months. Yeah. So how could they really make that distinction? <laughs> yeah. They think she was drinking and taking LSD and it was a death by drowning. Okay. So the police are asking Terry's parents to accept that their A student cheerleader, school leader, and well-liked and well-adjusted daughter was taking LSD and drinking so much that she just wandered into the freezing cold water and drowned. <laughs> None of Case this closed. is true. Okay, yeah. move along. Wow. And remember Jane Doe? Yeah. Jane will visit Carla and Paul one more time on December 22nd, 1992. Mm. Carla this time pressured her to have sex with Paul, and Jane Doe got upset, and she left. Okay. Now, you might be wondering, they took his blood and saliva years ago yeah. when he was the Scarborough rapist. Right. So why are they connecting the dots all the way to Paul? Yeah. Well, because in February of 1993, Paul's samples had not been analyzed. Remember, I told you they sat on a shelf. Jeez. So they dig them uh, out after he's just in the right place at the wrong time too many times. I mean, there's a tip line out there for all these various murders yeah. and rapes and a reward of $150,000. And when the tips come in, all of them have one thing in common. Paul Bernardo. Yeah, yeah. but... Still, they're not going to investigate him. Not yet, because when police would talk to him, he was gracious yeah. and helpful. He was clean cut and orderly. Mr. Charmer. And he drove a Nissan car. And the only car that had been mentioned with Camaro. any of the abductions was a Camaro. Camaro, right. And when his ex-girlfriend even goes to the police to say, listen, this composite is Paul, just like so many other people had done. Right. She also tells him he's a sadist. He's a rapist, and he threatened to kill me. Wow. One of Paul's friends steps forward. He tells police, Paul's the killer. 
And also around this time, Paul and Carla petition to change their last name to Thiel. Why? A name Paul took from the 1988 movie Criminal Law. It's a villain from this movie, Uh, a serial killer from a wealthy family who is played by Kevin Bacon. What's amazing about this is he's doing everything except putting spring-loaded fingers that are pointing to him. Yeah, it's me. I'm the killer. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Detective Steve Irwin, no relation to the animal guy, (laughs) puts Paul under surveillance. But they wouldn't have to go after him because Carla was going to serve him up on a silver platter. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. In the summer of 1992, Paul really starts abusing Carla. Mm. I read he used her as a punching bag. Uh. She would do the kink, but she drew a line at being physically beaten when it wasn't involved with sex. Right. Wow. Well, I guess everybody has boundaries, right? Yeah. (laughs) And those are hers. Jeez. On December 27th, 1992, Paul beats Carla with a flashlight on the arms and legs, her head and face. When she went back to work on January 4th of 1993, she tells everybody, I've been in a car accident. Okay. She had two black eyes, some serious looking bruises, but she did not leave him. Not yet. It's after her co-workers become suspicious because they call Carla's parents. They physically pick her up and remove her from the house she shares with Paul. But as they're dragging her out, she runs back into the house to look for something. Her mom and dad take her to St. Catherine's General Hospital, where her injuries are documented, and she gives a statement to the authorities. Mm -hmm. She tells them, I'm a battered spouse. Oh, wow. She files charges against Paul. Really? And he's arrested. Wow. But then he's released. <laughs> yeah, this guy's part cat, isn't he? He's got nine lives. Nine lives. Yeah. Carla goes to her middle sister Lori's home, and one of Lori's friends is a Toronto cop. Now, all of this is happening before these DNA results come back. February 9th, 1993, the Toronto police and the Ontario Green Ribbon Task Force want to interview Carla. They wanted to fingerprint her and ask her about the Mickey Mouse watch on her wrist that was very similar to the one that Kristen French was wearing when she was abducted. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Wow. So when they bring her in and interview her, Carla wants to focus on the abuse that she has suffered at the hands of Paul. Mm. Yeah. I bet you do. I bet you don't want to talk about Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. The Toronto police interview her for five hours, and Carla realizes by the questions they're asking her that they have put together that the Scarborough rapes and the murders in St. Catharines are all one person. She tells her aunt and uncle that Paul is the serial rapist and that he also killed Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Wow. And she tells them that the rapes are all recorded on (laughs) videotape. (laughs) Oh. Okay, well, I, th- I think the police may have enough now. What do you think? Yes. <laughs> Back at the police station, they have reopened the investigation of Tammy Hamolka's death. All too hinky. It's all too hinky. Yep. February 11th, just two days after they question her, Carla gets herself an attorney. She'd taken care of an attorney's dog at the vet clinic, and his name was George Walker. So yeah. that's who she calls. Okay. When he interviews her, he realizes that Carla has blood on her hands, too. Mm. 
And even though he has no idea the extent of her involvement, he wants to negotiate some immunity for his client in exchange for her cooperation. Gotcha. So police put Carla under 24-hour surveillance. Then two days after that, on February 13th, the couple's name change was approved. (laughs) Valentine's Day, the next day, February 14th, 1993, George Walker meets with the Crown Criminal Law Office. This is equivalent to a state or a county prosecutor in the United States. His name is Murray Siegel. George, Carla's attorney, tells Murray, look it. There's a videotape of all these rapes and murders. But because Carla is in so deep with Paul as a participant, when the prosecutor hears all this information, he tells Carla's attorney, George, well, full immunity is off the table. (laughs) You think? Not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. If we got videotape, I don't think you've got any bargaining chips here. Yeah. That that full immunity, that's not going to happen. You got to give him props for trying. Yeah. But hang on, hang on, hang on. On February 17th, 1993, Paul Bernardo is finally arrested on numerous charges. And not a day too soon. (laughs) Not a day too soon. (laughs) They get search warrants for his home on February 19th that he and Carla shared because Paul's link to the murders was weak. Really? Yeah. The warrant contained limitations. Okay. No evidence that was not expected and documented in the warrant was permitted to be removed from the premises. (laughs) All videotapes the police found had to be viewed in the house. Wow. And damage to the house had to be kept to a minimum. Okay. Police could not tear down walls looking for videotapes. The search of the house included updated warrants, lasted 71 days, and found a tape. The police found one tape with a short segment depicting Carla performing oral sex on Jane Doe. Okay. And a written description of every one of the Scarborough rapes, plus an extensive library of books and videos on sexual deviation, porn, and serial killers. Wow. Now, there's no evidence that he raped all those women. It's just a list of all those women. On May 5th, 1993, Carla's attorney, Walker, was informed that the government was offering her a 12-year sentence plea bargain, and she had one week to accept. Hmm. If she declined, the government would charge her with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and other crimes. Right. So Carla's attorney, George Walker, accepted the offer, and Carla later agreed to it. She's going to get 12 years, but she's got a rat on Paul. Mm -hmm. On May 14th, 1993, the plea agreement between Carla, Hamolka, and the Crown was finalized, and she began giving her statements to the police investigators. She would tell them the absolute truth about her involvement in the crimes and everything she knew about them. And Carla's deal, 12 years, for each of the two victims, Leslie and Kristen, run concurrently. And she would be up for parole in three years. Oh, wow. And they were going to try to get her committed to a mental hospital instead of a prison. Right. So Carla actually checks into a psychiatric hospital for assessment, and she's given heavy doses of drugs, and she insisted on being given even larger doses. Hmm. And it's while she's in this hospital that she writes a letter to her parents. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Dear mom and dad, this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. 
She tells them she can't lie anymore and that she and Paul are both responsible for the death of her sister, Tammy. Can you imagine getting a letter from your No. Oh, my God. No. Wow. She tells her parents that Paul was in love with Tammy and wanted to have sex with her. She tells them that he threatened her physically and emotionally if she didn't help him. Mm. She tells her parents that she used cheap sleep medication from work but that the combination of the drugs and the food that Tammy ate caused her to vomit. Quote, I tried so hard to save her. I am so sorry, but no words I can say can bring her back. I would gladly give my life for hers. I don't expect you to ever forgive me, for I will never forgive myself. Uh, End quote. Jeez. Now, to protect Paul's right to a fair trial, a publication ban is imposed on Carla's preliminary hearing. Mm -hmm. But you can't keep people off the Internet. Right. And because the proximity to the United States and their newspapers is so close, the court's order was effectively nullified because American journalists were citing their First Amendment rights. Right. But all kinds of rumors were floating around. And because Stephen King's misery was very popular at the time this happened, there was a rumor that all the girls were hobbled like James Caan was <laughs> in the movie or Paul Sheldon. Wow who wrote the cock duty books. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great movie. But police are coming up empty-handed on the evidence front. If Paul was going to go to jail for his rapes and murders, Carla was going to have to give up everything. Right. She's going to have to give up all the goods. Yeah. The search warrants expired on April 30th, 1993. And a week later, on May 6th, Paul told his attorney, Ken Murray, in writing, to enter his house and remove but not watch six videotapes <sighs> hidden behind a pot light, which we call recessed lighting, in the bathroom. Okay. Carla is ready to sing like a canary on Paul. She walks the police through the house on May 17, 1993, where they find some DNA evidence and the receipt for the cement they used to dispose of Leslie Mahaffey. Boom. As pesky receipts. Yeah. On May 18, 1993, Carla Hamolka was arraigned on two counts of manslaughter. Paul Bernardo was charged with two counts each of kidnapping, unlawful confinement, aggravated sexual assault, and first-degree murder, as well as one of dismemberment. Oh, wow. Coincidentally, that day, Paul's attorney first watched the tapes. And Ken Murray decided he's going to hang on to these tapes and use them against Carla on the stand during Paul's trial. But neither Ken Murray or Carolyn McDonald, the other attorney who's on his defense team, they're not very experienced in criminal law. And soon they start thinking, this isn't right. Ethically, you think? this isn't right. Yeah. And we're withholding evidence. Right. By October 1993, Ken and his law partners had studied over 4,000 documents from the Crown. Ken Murray has said he was willing to hand over the tapes to the Crown if they had let him cross-examine Carla in the anticipated preliminary hearing. Okay. On these tapes, it's Carla sexually assaulting four female victims, having sex with a female sex worker in Atlantic City, and drugging an unconscious victim. Oh. Carla's trial was a media circus sure. when it began on June 28, 1992, where her psychiatric report set the stage for her plea bargain deal. Quote, Carla knew what was happening, but she felt totally helpless and unable to act in her own defense or in anyone else's defense. She was, in my opinion, paralyzed with fear and in that state became obedient 
and self-serving. Now, I do want to say that she plays a submissive partner in their dominant submissive relationship. So there's that. I'm not defending her, but I do want to make that point. She got her 12-year concurrent sentence, but she's got to come back for Paul's trial. But still, the ethical dilemma is hanging over Paul's attorney, Ken Murray, so much so that Paul's attorney hires his own attorney (laughs) to advise him on the matter. Yeah. Wow. And this attorney, Austin Cooper, then kicked it on up to the Law Society of Upper Canada's Professional Conduct Committee for advice. He was. And the Law Society tells Kid Murray to seal the tapes in a package and turn them over to the judge who is presiding in Paul's trial. Uh. And they also tell him to remove himself as Paul's attorney and to tell Paul what he'd been instructed to do by the Law Society. Yeah, walk away, get away. I got to get away from you. September 12, 1994, Austin Cooper, Ken Murray's attorney, attends Paul Bernardo's trial and tells Justice Patrick Lesage that John Rosen is replacing Ken Murray as Paul's attorney, and he explains to the court what the Law Society as a whole had advised Ken Murray to do with the tapes. Mm. Now, John Rosen, the new defense counsel, is mad because he wanted the tapes turned over to the defense before they went to the judge. John Rosen held on to the tapes for two weeks, then turned them over to the prosecution. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, man. And what police are just now realizing is that Carla is a big part of these kidnappings. The tortures, the rapes, the murders, the cover-ups. She's not the— She's uh, not Pollyanna. Yeah. She's not the victim here. Yeah, she's not a victim. But she's already got her 12 years. And Paul is telling the court that he did rape the girls, but it was Carla— who killed the girls, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Now, as word of all this hits the public, there is a huge outcry for Carla to be held accountable along with Paul. But it's too late. The public thinks that Carla knew where the tapes were and that she concealed the facts on Jane Doe, claiming that she was under the control of Paul. (laughs) Paul's trial would be delayed for two years after his arrest. Part of this is the moral and ethical dilemma we just talked about. Attorneys can never do anything fast. I'm sorry, attorneys. (laughs) I love you, but nothing ever happens fast. In May of 1995, Paul's trial begins, and this time the videotapes are the critical pieces of evidence. Paul is facing two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, and two counts of forcible confinement, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of performing an indignity on a human body. And I'm just telling you now, that's the stuff that I didn't talk about. If you want to go look it up, go look it up. I'm not going to, I'm not giving it any press right here. I'm just not giving it any energy. Yeah, that's sad. The Crown prosecutor started the trial with a videotape of a close-up of Carla naked and masturbating. It's close up and explicit. Now that's going to send the courtroom into a tizzy. And while they watch this tape, Carla talks about finding 13-year-old virgins for him to rape. Then the tapes of Leslie, Kristen, and Jane Doe are shown, and Carla is called to the stand to elaborate even more. Remember, this is the part of her plea bargain. And it gets weird and pornographic as she details what he would do to her And the names he would call her, which I'll also leave to your imagination. Just think of every profane derogatory term there is for a woman. That's what he called her. When the defense gets its turn, they try to make her out to be a willing participant. Try to make Carla out to be a participant. 
And more than that, they showed that the murder of Kristen had to be carried out so that the two of them could make it to Easter dinner with her parents. (laughs) Now, it's at this point that everyone, including the press, realizes Carla needs to be held accountable just like Paul. She's already made her deal. But even people inside the prison who are watching this trial are going to get Carla when she goes to prison because she'd been spending her time in a mental institution. And there were even online groups called Carla Homoka Death Pool. Mm. Yeah. She went to Joliet Prison and stayed there for the better part of her 12-year sentence. The Canadian press called her sentence, quote, a deal with the devil, Mm. end quote. As for Paul, it was pretty cut and dry. He was convicted of almost 30 counts of rape and murder and received a life sentence on September 1st, 1995, with the possibility of parole in 25 years. In February of 2018, he was denied parole. (laughs) He's still serving his life sentence in a maximum security prison in Mill Haven, Ontario. He was in the Kingston Penitentiary until 2013, and most of his prison time has been in solitary confinement. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. In 2021, he failed a second parole bid. He's been declared a dangerous offender. You think? Which in Canada means he's likely going to spend the rest of his life in jail. As for Carla, she served her 12 years, and in 2005, she was released from prison. She was 35 years old. There were loads of protests from the victim's families and the whole of the Canadian public. She wanted her release to be private. Like when they let her go, she didn't want anybody to know about it, but it didn't happen. I'm sorry, Carly. I don't think you got a choice on the matter. (laughs) Yeah. And a judge in Quebec ruled that the media would not be restricted from covering her post-prison life. She eventually married her attorney's brother. (laughs) Who's this idiot? Yeah. Wow. She had three children, a girl and two boys. Wow. Now, I will say that when she was released, her father was quoted as saying he would not be there to greet her. Mm. And I get that. I do. Her parents didn't want anything to do with her. Several days after Carla's release from prison in 2005, Paul was interviewed by police and his attorney, Tony Bryant. Bryant was subsequently interviewed by the media, providing Paul's thoughts about the release of his former wife. Mm -hmm. And according to Bryant, Paul Bernardo claimed that he had always intended to free the girls. He and Carla held captive. Paul claimed that Carla was worried that Leslie Mahaffey's blindfold had fallen off and that she would be able to identify them. Further, Paul claimed that it was Carla's plan to murder Leslie by injecting an air bubble into her bloodstream, eventually causing an embolism. Hmm. I think Paul's tired of taking the brunt of their horrific crimes. He wants her to be as miserable as he is in prison for the rest of his life. Interestingly enough, Carla and Tammy's sister, the middle child, Lori, she has since changed her last name. Can't blame her. I think sisters, especially the ones that are so close in age as these were. Yeah. yeah, It's really hard to to wrap your head around that. And to think that one of them murdered the other. I mean, my heart goes out to Lori and Carla's family but mostly to the multitude of girls and families that Paul and Carla destroyed. Yeah, Yeah, and this is Canada. This is the kind of stuff that just doesn't happen. But that is the story of the Ken and Barbie killers, and that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately, or have you listened to any good books? 
All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Wow. Carla and Paul. Wow. Yeah, like I said while we were doing it, I just don't even have comments for what they were doing. You know, I think about the nature versus nurture thing because his father was a peeping Tom and a sexual abuser of children, right? right? right. But it wasn't his biological father. So... Was it just because he was in that household and that, but, you know, all the accounts say that he was a great kid and had a wonderful upbringing. So it's really hard to, really hard to reconcile all of that. But they were, they were monsters. Monsters. Well, that's giving monsters a bad name. Yeah. And if you, if you really want to go look it up, go for it. But I'm just telling you, it's not worth your time. He's a horrible person. Well, let's move away from that and do a little bless your heart. All right. Once again, we have four. There it is. The quad. Exactly. (laughs) This first one I'm calling, P.S., nobody move. Now, what do you think the worst possible time to faint is? When you're robbing a bank. In the middle of robbing a bank. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what happened to a Beaver Creek, Ohio thief. The teller called 911 and asked for medics. But you have to applaud the man's stick-to-itiveness while the ambulance was en route the suspect handed a note to the teller demanding all of her cash. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't going to let a good thing go. I guess. Yeah. All right. Number two, no one likes a tattler. Tattletale? Yep. Okay. A good Samaritan noticed an elderly man being robbed, so he jumped in and punched the thief. Oh. Yeah, the thief was so upset, he called a police to complain. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Kidding me? Yeah, well, you know, it takes wow. all time. All right, this next one's called Burrito Patrol. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Don Juarez Ramirez. Ooh, you did that so Thank well. Thank you. I should have said burrito. Anyway, <laughs> Don had it all figured out. He could be a cop without having to take the boring test. But he was arrested in Grapevine, Texas, after pulling over a driver in his pickup truck Outfitted with flashing lights. Oh. Yeah, he even had an ID badge, which he made by blacking out a restaurant gift card and etching in the words police. Oh. However, however, he kept the restaurant's logo, a jalapeno pepper, surrounded by the words Chipotle Mexican Grill. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Bless his heart. Bless his heart. And the last one, two, idiot at jail.com. Okay. A German bank robber <laughs> sent mocking emails to a local police ridiculing their efforts to arrest him. First, he let them know they had his age, build an accent wrong. Oh, Then okay. he corrected their announcement that he had escaped on foot. No, 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 no. He had a getaway car. 
The cops got the last word in, though, when they arrested the guy a few hours later because they used his email to trace him. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> mental giants. Yes. So there's your bless your hearts. <laughs> mental, mental giants. Yep, yep, yep. I'm going to give you a safety tip real quick, everybody. If you see flashing lights behind mm -hmm. you and it's an unmarked car, yeah. it's something that doesn't look like a police car, call 911. Yep. Give them your location. Yep. Tell them somebody's got lights behind you. If it's their guy, they'll tell yeah. you. And you just say, I'm going to get off of the next exit where it's lit and there are lots of people. And I'm not pulling over for this right. guy. But you can always call 911 and tell yep. them. I realize somebody's behind yeah, me. Yeah, they've got GPS on all their cars and everything, so they'll be able to tell you. Yeah, it's just a safety yep. tip. Don't just pull over for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you have a bless your heart like some of these others, good Lord, <laughs> help us all. Oh, man. Lord, help yep. us. <laughs> you can send it to us at hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu. Yep. You can also suggest a case. Yeah, please do. That's all we have today. That's my amazing husband out there. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.